thank you so much that you are who you are and that you're not like us. Your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, everything that you are and have ever been and always will be will be above and beyond and infinitely greater than anything you create, especially something that you create like man that has so adamantly and stubbornly gone his own way. I stand at the head of that line as one who has raised a fist in objection, rejection, and rebellion against you. As one, and we stand as people before you as a people that not only went our own way, but aggressively, zealously did so. And you, you applied grace and power and infinite patience in not dealing with us according to our Father. So how do we come before you? How do we open our mouths? How do we even look at the words on the page that you have given us? We know it's only because you beckon us to, you command us to, you, you with the call provide the grace to rise up and bow down. And so we do so before you. We thank you for this brother that has been so consistently godly before you, humble before you, eager and such a good student, such an eager learner. We're humbled by that. I'm convicted by that, Lord. He has way less time than I do to search the scriptures and probably knows them better than I do. So I thank you for that. Help, help us with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how about we look at Colossians a little bit this morning? Turn over there with me. This is a not part of a sequential exposition. This is we're studying Paul's letter to the Ephesian church in Greenville. And we're at the turn of chapter three, the prayer, the benediction, and then the application of chapter four, verse one. I call on you, therefore, to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. So that's that's where we are. Colossians is sort of a companion, I'm sure you know that, a sort of a companion, parallel, almost a commentary on Ephesians. So many of the same ideas on a, approach from a sort. Paul is the, the king of subtle redundancy. You don't, you don't know he's saying the same thing, and he's, he's telling you exactly the same way, in a different way, in such a way that you don't even think you've heard it before. And he's really, really ingenious. And all of that to say, I'll, I'll, I'll point out for you where to read when the time comes. But as I was about to say, this is a little bit different of 
a service from the standpoint we are gathering together publicly to affirm sort of uh, icing on the cake in a process of many years and time that has been invested by Pete and this church that loves Christ so much. So we're just sort of, uh, I remember my last, my, my ordination service and pastor got up in front of all these people and said, you know, what big things we're expecting from you. And, you know, as he starts talking, he starts sinking down in the, in the pew, not wanting anybody to look at you and everybody's looking at you. And, uh, but it was a charge that I remember to this day from the standpoint of being convicted about living up to what had been invested in. And, and I, I exhort you with that. Not, not, not for us, but for the one who died for you. I'm going to present to you five marks that you need to set in stone, five points, five reminders. And these things that I'm going to remind you of very briefly are matters of non-negotiable truth. There's so much that we say, and as we interact, even with the writers of Scripture, we know that the Bible itself tells us that we see through a glass darker. Everything we see is, is colored by our own fallenness. Everything that we see is colored by our own sinfulness. Everything that we see is colored by our own prejudice. And so we're waiting for that clear view. We're waiting for that day which comes to every believer where we are brought out into the pure and perfect light. That hasn't happened yet. We know that. There are some things that the Lord has gracefully enabled us to see that we're not unclear about. And I can straighten y'all's eschatology out, you know, tell y'all all how y'all got it all wrong. I got it all right. You can do the same with me on other issues and and sometimes we get personally invested in, in matters of which we sound a lot more sure than we actually are about what we say we believe. That's fair, right? Yes. You don't want to appear insecure or unsure of certain, you know, certain things that you've come to a conclusion about. And these points are, are not in that neighborhood. In fact, they... Uh, they help us remember the humility and meekness of Christ. And if he was meek and lowly, then where does that put us in regard to our attitude toward ourselves and our imperfections and our, you know, very rough edges, right? And it also, it helps us when we think about these five things that I'm going to give you, it helps us to remember how to, you know, I don't think you. I'm already off on the rabbit trail. I don't necessarily think unity is agreeing with everybody about everything. I don't. I don't hold to that. We disagree on that. <laughs> but I think unity is the spirit and the attitude with which we deal with one another over the things that we are sure about. It's humility. It's meekness. But there are some things, 
on which we must be clear. And when you step into a formal office, the highest office in the land, the highest office in the kingdom, the most important job in the world, no matter what you might feel or what others may say, there is no more higher calling and we will be held to a higher standard. So it's pretty serious. So we need to be sure about the things that we're sure about and confident about the things that we're confident about and humble about so many other things that we don't know exactly. And I hope you're not sitting there thinking, well, you know, that's all right for you, Pastor, but I've got everything figured out. This message is really for you if you had that thought. So what are the five things, five marks that you, as you set out in a with a formal mantle on now, a, 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 you know, a, a formal ordination in your in your CD or your resume, what are the things that you can't be unclear about? Well, some of the things, and I, I'm long on long on introduction, right? Some of the things that uh, you you can't be unsure of require that attitude even more so when you're dealing with other people, especially unbelievers, but even, I guess, equally those within the context of the church, because light and understanding and illumination in the life of the church and in the life of a believer is the same as salvation. It's a matter of God's grace reaching a person and opening their eyes and helping them to understand whatever it is that they need to understand and to face whatever it is that's in front of them. So it's the same thing. You deal with even the things that you're certain about with the grace. I always love the fact that Jesus only said two things about himself. Come, all you who are labor and heavy laden, I will give rest. You will find rest for your soul. Come and learn of me. I am meek and lowly of heart should never have a conversation with anybody that you don't have a handle on. Have a handle on. All right, here are the five things. Number one, as you enter into formal ministry, you must be unwavering and certain and clear and yet humble about the sovereignty of Scripture as the foundational presupposition of your life. You answer to God. He speaks to you perfectly, inspirationally, categorically, and sufficiently, and let me add this last adjective, exclusively through his word. We speak to God through prayer. God speaks to us through his word. Your life and the reflection of the fruit of your life in ministry will be reflected based on the degree to which you exercise that loyalty and fidelity. First Thessalonians 2.13, as you well know, says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you to believe. The Bible is God's word. It is God speaking. It is him here with us in spirit and in word. 
And it is absolutely authoritative, and it is absolutely the quintessential mark of your ministry that you demonstrably bow before that sovereignty. What did Jesus say in Luke chapter 8? They were saying, your mother and your brothers and your family's here, and they're pulling on you, and they want to see you, and they need to have some time with you. And he said, my mother, my brothers... Are those who hear the word of God and do it. It not only speaks sovereignly in your life, but it dictates your fellowship. It dictates your thoughts. It dictates your priorities. Which one of us would not emotionally have a predisposition to yielding to the emotional pull of our own family? Whose family is more important? The family of God or the family of man? The word of God cuts straight through that and just says, this is what, what the, 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 the stark reality of these points is that like your point on glory, which is my next point. Thank you very much. The, 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 it's, it cuts to the quick, but it also reveals to you that you've been thinking about things upside down. How could a priority over something that you're naturally drawn to and so invested in emotionally and the word of God come to you and say, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That means I've got to put my affections aside, my emotional predilection aside, my priorities aside, my desires aside, and I have to bow to the scriptures which categorically say what my priorities are. Like the bat. Put my students in here. How about homeschoolers? Is a bat a bird or a, not a bird? It's not a bird. I don't know. It's not a bird. All right, good. Homework. <laughs> See what God says about it in Deuteronomy 14. It may turn your view of that upside down. Anyway, the bat. Born in the dark, raised in the dark, lives in the dark, functions in the dark, hunts in the dark, mates in the dark, eats in the dark. Categorical experience of the bat's life is darkness. But if you could speak bat language and you could talk to the bat, the bat would be able to pers persuade you that you live in the dark. Their experience is normal. They're hanging upside down most of their life, and they think that they're right side up and everybody else is upside down. <laughs> and it's a matter of perspective. The scriptures will categorically invade your natural thinking and reveal to you that you live upside down. You, your lifelong process now is being turned upright and having your little bat eyes opened to the light. Bat can't hardly absorb any light through his eyes. They're not blind. But they their eyes are reared with night vision to see in the dark. Spooky illustration. 
Your whole sanctification process is a matter of you having your heart, your spiritual eyes, your priorities, your life turned right side up because you were born upside down. And the only hope that you have of seeing things clearly is to reject your natural view and accept the scriptures as God's authority. That's it. No hope for us otherwise. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It has to cut you loose from that bat line and help you get right side up. What if you went into bats? Are, I can stay on this all day. I woke up early this morning thinking about bats. That's the life of a preacher. <laughs> Think about it. If you walked into a bat cave, no, 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 right? And you flipped on the mega spotlight, what you would see would repulse you. I don't want to go into detail, but you could plant a cornfield for sure. <laughs> and if your olfactory senses were in order, you would be repulsed. When the light comes on, all that stuff, it's like when you walk in the kitchen and, and you turn on the light, the cockroaches run for the hills because they cannot abide the light. And if you get to the point where you're so settled and so cocky and so sure that you know everything and you've got everything sorted out, and you can't be spoken to, and you're like the old and wise king that Solomon talks about that can be admonished no more, just get out. Get out. No freshness, there's no newness, there's no humility, there's no coming before the Lord and saying, you know what, I've looked at this all my life in this way, but what am I seeing this right? Am I seeing this right? <laughs> I don't need to tell you that you need to bow before Scripture, but I have to tell you that. My job to tell you that. That as every day of your life, you're going to be pulled and tugged to lean to your own understanding and do things the way you would do them instinctively and with your own personality. And the Word of God is going to come and cut into that and say, Check me first. Check me. Now, you see why these points are non-negotiable, right? Now, that, in humility, I, with the most ardent enemy of God, I have to humbly say, I'm sorry, I love you, I pray for you, but on this point, I cannot be. And if you are moved by that, you will lead others astray, and you will be responsible. Number two. Number three, because you did the glory of God already. I'm going to do it anyway. Number two is the non-negotiable point that the glory of God is the objective. I was thinking about what you said about God, God's praise. I, I, don't, I think about glory like this. Glory emanates, right? Glory exudes off of whatever object is being glorified. You know why I think the glory of God is right? 
because it's just right. It's one of those things that comes into my experience and God is worthy of glory and the glory of God is simply right because it's God. And I don't, I may not even understand how it is that God seeks glory for himself. I may not be able to get to that high and lofty and deep consideration, but if I've bowed to the sovereignty of scripture and it says, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. I don't have to worry about not understanding it because it's just there for me. And I just say, amen. Amen. You're worthy of glory because you say you are. And if I don't understand it, you know, I think about Psalm 131. Oh, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty, nor do I concern myself with great matters or things which are beyond my grasp. Surely I have composed and pride in my soul like a weaned child rest against its mother. My soul is like a winged child within me. I don't have to worry about why God, I don't have to defend why God being glorified is right. I accept it as a categorical presupposition from scripture and I submit to that and I revel in that and I bow before that and I give myself to that purpose and he either produces that glory in my life to himself or he doesn't. <laughs> For all of God's promises in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. That's all I need. I, I, I can't understand the nuances of the lights of heaven and the glory of heaven and what it's made out of and how it works and when it shines and how bright it shines and on whom it shines and why it shines. Not my, not my, that's beyond my pay grade. Don't have to worry about that. You set yourself to live under the sovereignty of Scripture. And you measure your life by the glory of God. You deflect. It's not, it's not about me. It's not about me. Of course, if it's about me, like you said, I want you to praise me. Bow down right now. Give me my due. The whole thing is that the glory of God, practically speaking, corrects a sinful propensity that we all have, that we want glory, and the glory of God is for our good and benefit because it's the way things are supposed to be, and it helps the back get right back up as he ought to be. Simple. No argument. Sovereignty of Scripture and the glory of God. For it is God we might not get the Colossians. For it is God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's like wisdom. Wisdom you don't have. <laughs> If any man lacks, let him ask. You don't have wisdom. Wisdom is outside of you, and you ask, and it, you, it can be given to you. You don't work it out, figure it out. Wisdom is a, it's like the glory of God. It's, it's, it comes, it's given. It's manifested. Those are the first two non-objectives, non-negotiable objectives. 
You check yourself every minute, especially with a formal mantle of ministry. You check yourself every minute on those two principles. And then the last two points get really practical. And you look at how scripture is laid out. It presents the character of God, the virtues of God, the heart of God, and the mind of God to the glory of God. And then what are we left with as pastors, as believers, as members and part and parcel of the body of Christ? What are we left with? left with what do we do with all that what is the, it's the Ephesians paradox it's doctrine doctrine blessing blessing provision 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 truth 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 Walt worth it's it, at some point the manifestation of the sovereignty of scripture and the glory of God sound nebulistic or enigmatic or unreachable or unattainable if there's not some practical rubber meeting the road. Are you with me? You follow what I'm saying? There's a there's a practical outcome to those high and lofty principles. And and sovereignty and uh, the sovereignty of scripture and the glory of God, that's about as lofty as it gets in the Bible. And then what? Here's your third non-negotiable. The pro the, say this right. The precision of the gospel must be sought and taught. The first practical experience of the sovereignty of Scripture and the glory of God in my life is my having received and been birthed and been justified and been brought out of my sin and into the kingdom, as Colossians says, of his beloved Son, salvation <clears throat> and the doctrine of soteriology that is presented redemptively from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, you must be an expert in this. It is, it is the first doctrine to understand. And I'll tell you this, it will be the first doctrine that will get away from you because it is, if it might, if it's not your focus, you prove that it was Satan's focus. He's on it. He's on it. I think it is second. I mean, I don't know if his hatred for Israel or his hatred of the gospel, it probably intermixed in that chaotic mind and heart of his. But that is something that he, he, he focuses warfare on and brings tries to bring accusing thoughts from one brother to another in the church and bring division and disunity. But what he's after all of this time is this obfuscation of the basic principles of saving now, you knew I'd pull some kind of trick up here, right? I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on a point of the gospel, on a technical point of the gospel. Now I probably got everybody's attention because they think, well, he was right up on those first two points. Now he's fixing to jump off into heresy. Okay, well, hang in there. Be a good Berean and see if these things be so. It is my opinion, which is becoming a conviction, that in every age, Satan, he has a cycle of repetitive ploys, but there's some aspect of the gospel that he like gets under the underbelly of the church, 
And he just starts working on it, generation after generation, church after church. And, and he, he, gets, he gets on this thing that he realizes. And here's what you have to realize about the false gospel or the wrong gospel or the fake gospel, whatever you want to call it, that false teachers sometimes don't even know they're false teachers and they're fully persuaded that they're preaching the gospel because they themselves are deceived. They don't know. And if you hook them up to a lie detector test, they pass it. They pass it. And every generation, you know, uh, he might come along and punch on repentance or uh, and, and, and that he might water down the consequence of categorical repentance in the life of every true Christian or the presentation of the gospel. Or he might come along and lean us a little bit toward being able to take some kind of credit for our salvation because we we did participate in the belief factor and we we can take a little bit of credit for what we see and what we understand and get that door open a little crack and the next thing you know you got full blown Arminianism. Something something along those signs. So, right? So, 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 so. I don't know, and it could be a sign that we are living in late days, but I don't know if there's ever been a more subtle attack on the gospel than the one exists today. I want to challenge you to see if you've noticed it. Okay? If I said to you that we're ministers of the gospel, you'd say, amen. If I said to you that we're preachers of the gospel, you'd say, amen. If I said to you, we are preachers and proclaimers of the cross, you'd say, amen. And you'd make sure at some point in your presentation of the gospel, your understanding of the gospel, and your study of the gospel, you would even say out loud, I must keep the cross in the center, right? Keep it as a prime. You can't, you can't leave out the cross. <laughs> I know it sounds simplistic, and that's not the problem. We have a good grasp, I think, of what it cost Jesus, even to the point that he himself had to become sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And all of God's hostility, wrath, and anger that could ever be poured out on a sinner, he poured it out on this innocent man who never had sinned at all and took out the full measure of the punishment that you and I deserve upon himself. And he was exposed naked and, sh and, and shamed in the public square on the place of the skull and tortured his skin ripped off with whips with shards of glass in it and nails driven through his hands and his feet and hanging there and the only way he could get a breath was to push himself up on the nails to try to expand his slow suffocation none of us would back off for a minute on the importance of the cross right here's I hope everybody's listening by this point, right? Here's the point. I think we have a good, reasonable, I'd say, grasp on that aspect of the cross. I think what we have almost had completely stolen from us by our very crafty adversary is what the cross means to you. Why did Paul say, for I have been crucified with Christ. 
Nevertheless, I live not I, but Christ lives in me. Why did Paul say, for he who has died is freed from sin? Why does he picture in all of his eschal or all of his soteriological passages? Why does he paint this picture of somehow that it is not just the positional and ontological connection we have with Christ on his cross, but that somehow in the presentation of the gospel, in the counting of the cost of discipleship and being a true believer, that we have a responsibility as preachers of the gospel to preach the cross. And that means what the cross meant to him and what the cross will mean to you. And what it means to you is you die. You die. Jesus said what? Less a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth fruit. I don't think there is a greater cost that a sinner can be humbly exposed to that is more crucial in this because, listen, a sinner will do any and everything he possibly can to have the wealth of heaven and eternal life and the new heavens and the new earth and all the blessings that are coming to us in the future. If he could just keep a little bit of his own life. So, so in counting the cost, now to see it's free, right? It's free. Why is it free? Why is the gospel free? And why is my part with Christ free is because I'm giving something to God that is worth nothing and I'm getting something from God that is worth everything. I don't know what economic system you grew up in, but to me that's free. If I go up to a car dealership, I give him Monopoly money and he gives me a new Lamborghini, I'm going to tell you I got that Lamborghini for nothing. I got it for nothing. Your life is a vile, wasted mess. A waste of space, an offense to God's nostrils. The best of you, the best of you is like women's menstrual garments spoken of by Isaiah. The best of you, the best of you, and the best of you to the worst of you, which is about that far, all of that, if you do not enter into the grave with Christ. And Adam in you is not fully crucified, you have no part with it. None. None. That's those people in Matthew 7 that are going to say, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Weren't we at church? Weren't we on the deacon board? Weren't we elders? Weren't we pastors? Weren't we teachers? Didn't we do mighty wonderful? You did not die. You did not die. Perhaps some of you in here have had some kind of understanding of your own salvation experience and testimony in your, in your background or in your history. What you need to be asking yourself is, is there a point at which my life came to an end and I went into the grave? What do you think baptism is? There's so much confusion of that. What is baptism? Down you go. Die. Up you come. New. I challenge you, go home and turn on the TV or the radio or go get any book from the last hundred years and find a passage, a portion of the sermon, a portion of the teaching where that person is telling you, you need to count the cost of following Christ. And comparatively, it's nothing. But to you, from your perspective, it's everything. It means you give him your life and he ends it. 
That's what it means. That is the gospel. That's the hinge. That's the, that's the breaking point, the acid test. That's everything. And it also explains why we have millions of people walking around with a sincere expression of fidelity to Christ because 99% looks better than a lot of nothing. If you have not died with Christ, you do not live with him. That you need to check. If there's a there, if there's a secret hidden loyalty in your heart to your own plans, your own designs, your own missions, your own priorities, your own ideas, you see how this ties to the sovereignty of Scripture? Because my Bible teaches this. Unequivocal. It's everywhere. Once you've now I challenge you, now when you start reading through your New Testament, I want you to pay attention, pay strict attention to everywhere Paul refers to salvation retro uh, in, a, in a past terms. And he's talking about the fact that if he's talking to the church, he's talking to a bunch of resurrected dead people. Colossians. Three points. Sovereignty of Scripture. Glory of God. The precision of the gospel. The precision of the gospel. For I want you to know, chapter 2, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you and for those that lay over sea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. You want somebody ask you, what is the mystery? The mystery is Christ, which was veiled in the Old Testament. You can look back at it and see it very clearly now, but not, they couldn't see it. On the road to Emmaus, I, I opened the scriptures. He opened the scriptures and told them everything about himself from the Old Testament. It's Christ. It's the person and work of Christ. And it is your ontological and spiritual intimacy and intercourse with that that either ties you to him or separates you from him. And the central reality of Christ's life was his death. He set himself like a flint to go up to Jerusalem for one reason, and that was to die. And when you come to Christ... I can remember experientially, I, I don't like talking so much about experiences. It can be helpful, but I, and I'll just tell you this subjective and totally unique to, to my fingerprint situation of salvation. But I remember under tremendous burden and conviction of my wrong and my violation of the law of God and my wasted experience and wasted life. And I remember as I got closer and closer to that cross, I had the utter sensation of dying. I'm dying here. I'm going in this little schoolhouse here where this guy's going to tell me about Jesus, and I'm not coming out. I mean, I don't think I could equate it to is like having some kind of fatal disease that you knew was going to end your life, and, and that's, I mean, I knew you can't keep your life. You know, the worst, most blasphemous bumper sticker in the history of the world, God is my co-pilot. Okay. <laughs> All right. You run with that. 
But I got a feeling that plane's coming to a fiery end, right? That's a crash waiting to happen. You, here's salvation, right? Your heart, you're born with Adam, Pete, Bruce, Bob, Lawrence, whoever on the throne. And you spend 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years defiling it, making all the decisions, calling all the shots, setting all the directions and the priorities. And when the Holy Spirit comes to you with the law of God and the word of God and the conviction of his mind over your mind, that all culminates in the dethronement of that person. But he doesn't just step down off of that throne in your heart and take his place before submission to Christ. Why? Because he can't. He's not capable of doing that. It's like asking a dog to meow or a fish to fly. I'm not flying fish. That's a better example. A bear to fly, right? It's, you don't have the name. Eventually, you, your nature is going to take over and you're going to reascend that throne and keep on defiling. The only hope for you to end up in that prostrate condition of submission before the throne of God is for you to die. So when Christ comes into your life through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he brings your life to an end by the surgical scalpel of the law, and he puts you down like a dog. Nobody, nobody, you know, let, let me, I, think I always say this, and like, if I take your head and hold it under the pool, under the water, in about 15 seconds, you're going to start kicking. And you're going to want to do you know that bad dream where you've gone too deep and you can't get back up to the top. And you're, it's involuntary, right? You're going you're gonna to fight to live. The mercy of the Holy Spirit on the throne of your life and the kingship of Adam, which is you in control, you have to be held under until you stop kicking and breathing in that water. You won't submit to it otherwise. Nobody, nobody, nobody goes under the water. Okay, time to suck in. I mean, I'm sure there could be some kind of insane exception to that rule, but the normal person is going to fight to live. And in Adam, you're going to fight to live. And these, these are passive verbs here. I've been crucified with Christ. That's a passive verb. That means it happened to you. You were crucified with Christ by God so that you could live and be resurrected in him. And when you present the gospel in its precision, if you hide that from somebody, you're doing a disservice to their soul and your ministry. You have to give them the whole cause. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, you got to get up on Sunday morning. Oh, you got to stay awake. You know, might have to come Wednesday night once a month to make an appearance. No, you die. And then you don't make your own decisions. They're made for you under the sovereignty of Scripture. Yeah. Philippians 2. Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. What did he do? He set aside that equality with God willingly, and he descended and took on humanity. Now, you might say that's, you might, you might blow right through that, read right through that. But do you realize that would be like me? Asking you to take a bath with a skunk. 
That's what that would be. I mean, he's holy. He's pure. He's a pure eyes of the behold of iniquity. He's never sinned. He's never considered rebellion. He's totally loyal and devoted and in some sort of form as God that we can't even comprehend. And you're telling me I'm going to be confined to a bathtub with a skunk. That was enough. Nope. He goes a little further. He becomes a slave. Do loss. He becomes a slave, not to those that just he came to save. That's not what Philippians 2 says. He became a slave to Judas. He became a slave to every rebel, every rotten sinner. He It says he became a slave to all men. That's why he washed Judas' feet. He was he took on the form of a slave. That's enough. That's as far as I can go. Nope. Down further. Death. No, down further. Death on a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. <coughs> and so you get to frolic around with the life of Adam and enjoy and eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die and you get some sort of rubber stamp because you made a profession of faith that you believe Jesus died on the cross and you're okay and you, you believe in Jesus and you're going to be all right. The demons believe and tremble. They tremble. They were there. They saw it. They know everything that happened. And they're not saved. They're not saved because they've never died in Christ. Those are the things which angels long to look into. Your gospel ministry depends on you never being satisfied that you understand that doctrine as you should and that you delve into it, dig into it, present yourself before God to prayerfully consider what it is you're presenting as the saving truth of Christ. That's a burden, buddy. It's a privilege, but it's a burden. I'll read you a few passages. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I don't know why we don't use that with Jehovah's Witnesses. And you have been filled in him, and he is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him. There it is. If that was the only verse. But go to verse 20. If you then with Christ died to the elemental things of this world, why, as if you are still alive in this world, do you submit to its regulations? What's going to be saying? What? I'm just asking you. What is that? I'm not doing any Greek up here or fruit loops or cartwheels or nothing like that. Let's it clear syntactically. That's simple. It's profound. It's uh, it's part of the, the mystery that is revealed to the elect of God's people. But it is not. It's hard. It's not complicated. <laughs> right? Are you following? You, you can't get complacent that we got the gospel down. You go turn on the TV, turn on the radio, open a book of the last hundred years, and you show me the passage that calls on the sinner to die. Find it. Email me. Text me. I look voraciously. 
Now you go back. Some of you old people. Not me. Of course. I just looked at my sisters. You go back and you find the, the old men who presented their bodies as a living sacrifice before God, and they, they got this. They understood it. And they would have never dreamed of presenting a gospel to a sinner without the prospect of his the end of his own life. That's what it means. When I say, when I say to you, you have to give your life to Christ to be a true Christian. What am I saying in that? Follow this carefully. When I say that to you, you have to get, if you're being drawn, convicted, and you're going to be regenerated, rebirthed, born again by the Spirit of God, and have the nature of Christ where you don't desire sin anymore, but you desire righteousness, you got to die. When I say you got to give your life to Christ, that's what I'm saying. Now, I hope you're not saying that, not knowing what it means. And if you are, the Spirit of God can overcome your foolishness. And, 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 and I mean, when I came to Christ, I understood that it was a transaction for my life to have life. It was a transaction. It was a categorical deal. One, that's a good deal. I'll take that deal. <laughs> that's a good deal. But if you're struggling with assurance of your salvation, it might be legitimate because you may not have died. You may be still breathing the air of Adam and you're saying or pretending or convincing yourself that it's the air of heaven. The air of heaven is resurrected air. And our death with Christ, quite frankly, is almost like getting a blood test on your finger. It's like a pinprick. I, I always compare it to a guillotine. If, 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 if y'all ever get mad at me and you want to martyr me, bring your guillotine with you because, you know, like this, boom. Absent from the body, quick. Present with the Lord, quick. I'll take that. Not stretched out on a rack. Not stripped of my skin. Not brutally burnt. Not that that can and won't happen to some of us. It, it can and will. But our death with Christ because he took what? The sting of death is sin. He removed that. So basically, it's just like a mercy killing. You're just, it's easy. It's easy. You, it's easy. But Adam is going to fight not to stay under that water. I'm just saying to you, this is the gospel you say you believe. I hope, I hope you, You're right, I might take up more time than I suspect. The sovereignty of Scripture, the glory of God, the precision of the gospel. Colossians 3. Set your mind on things above. Verse 2. Not on things on the earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. We missed this somehow. How did he get this from us? Because he's crafty. I mean, it's like that counterfeit thing. You don't make a counterfeit that looks like a clown. You make a counterfeit that looks like the real deal. So you just take just this little thing out of it that kills this, the hole in the Titanic. It kills the whole thing. But it's under the surface of the water, so we don't see it. And then the next thing you know, down we go. 
This should be the gospel of your church. It should be the gospel of my church. It should be the gospel you pre preach. It should be the gospel you understand. It should be the gospel you defend. You're, you're, you could not do something more cruel to a sinner than provide hope for him of eternal life and him somehow able to keep his nasty life in Adam. You could not be more cruel to him. And God did not treat you like that. If you're saved, he made that clear. You don't get to keep you. That's enough. Fourth point. <clears throat> and this one goes off the rails quick because somehow the first three get cattywampus, right? We somehow kind of bend scripture a little bit and we sometimes how our celebrity culture, we always want to exalt people and make them famous. And so glory gets confused. And then we don't want to draw a huge crowd by telling people they have to die. That ain't going to attract nobody. Right? That's not going to draw in the multitudes. Closer Jesus got to the cross, the smaller the crowd was, I just say. And he always would heal somebody and say, keep that to yourself. He wasn't seeking celebrity. He was there to do the will of his father. And here's the fourth point. The precision of sanctification is inseparable from the first three points. The see, we get all, here's what happens because we don't understand sanctification, which is like if you went out in that beautiful oak tree over there and you got one of these big gnarly machines and you reached around that tree and you pulled it up, right? Roots it up. And you laid it over on the ground. And you said to me, Pastor, you see that tree laying there? Is it dead? I'd say, yes. Hey, Pastor, you see that tree laying there? Is it dead? No. Because it's going to take, even though that, that's what happens when we die, when Adam dies, when we give our life and he crucifies us. He pulls us up out of the roots of the world and the roots of sin and Satan itself. Pulls us up out of that totally. And then it takes time like if you walk out there a couple of days later, there's still a lot of green leaves on that tree, right? It doesn't just, you don't just wop it over on the ground and watch it die. You wop it over on the and wop it over on the ground and die immediately. It it's a it's a it's a time where death eats into it, right? And that's what sanctification is like. But the problem is, here's now I want to clear this up. I hope this keeps you interested. But the problem is we develop some sort of form and process and formula and methodology of sanctification that is not necessarily connected to the manner in which we were saved. We start polishing up the outside of the cup. We start projecting a godliness that we know in our hearts we don't have. We start using a language that we not that we don't necessarily use in our mind. We 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 project one thing, and oftentimes we are and live another. And sanctification comes along and says, "Look, the key to your sanctification is to keep it connected to that gospel." What is that? What's that look like, brother? I'm struggling with this. I. I am tempted to regress back into some manner and form of 
lifestyle that I hate and will define me before I was re-rooted into Christ. I'm, I'm confessing that to you and putting that before you because you say that you can love me just like Christ loved you. And that will prevent you from having a judgmental attitude of me. How could you do that? How could you say that? How could you think that? Be like me versus, man, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I'm fighting in my own heart and less, less non-judgmentally, but with full discernment, put our lives before each other in humility and love and let's love each other and pray for each other the same way that God reached us in Christ. Why do you think he says things like forgive each other the way God forgave you? Because that is the quintessential key to biblical sanctification is treating others the way you want to be treated. Not re-exalting yourself into some sort of pie, onto some sort of pious platform where people feel intimidated by you, by you because you've got it so much together they can't even get close to you because they feel the horror of your conviction not God's conviction. And it becomes a polished methodology of sanctification. You've got to get this together. You've got to get that. And what does the scripture say? Remember sovereignty of scripture? What does it say, Peter? It says, confess your faults to one another. What does it say? Paul said, I would, he said this, I would rather boast in my infirmity and weakness so that the power of God might rest upon me. We don't do that. I don't want you to see my weaknesses. I much less ain't going to tell you about them. Because that would make you think less of me and it would make you see me for who I actually am and what my needs are. Dude, that's sanctification. That's what it is. That's what it is. That proves, you ready for the whole illustration to come together? That proves that the divine, invisible, and sovereign hand of God has taken that tree, raised it up, and replanted it in the ground of heaven. And now it, it's going to get the soil of heaven, the water of heaven, the air of heaven, the wind of heaven, the resistance and chastisement and discipline of heaven. It's going to get all of heaven's power and force upon it to produce the fruit that it's designed to produce. But in the meantime, it has to coexist alongside of those green old leaves that because of the power of that new grass or that new soil is slowly killing out all that foreign material. That's sanctification. But that's precision, brother. That's, that's where you're getting into the gnarly nuances of being able. You In ministry, you are more tempted than in any other profession to project a godliness that you don't actually have. That's right. <laughs> And those people receive the harshest words from Christ. Be godly, but understand what godly means. If people can't get close to you and tell you stuff and feel comfortable with you and knowing that they're safe, man, that you're not going to betray them, that you're not going to throw them under the bus and use them as a sermon illustration, it makes me want to puke, man, what we do to each other. 
God help us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Bear with one another. This book here. Forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you must also do. You just live in this. Yeah, I've done that. I'm guilty of that. I'm sorry. I, I can. I'm, I'm. I'm capable of that. Man, let's 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 go before the Lord and ask for His help. And if we need to bring somebody else into this, let's bring somebody else into it. Because the enemy is sin. The, the enemy is not piety. Or the, 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 the goal is not piety. You follow me? The Bible, if you get really familiar with the Bible, it presents a very precise methodology of sanctification, yet it is so easy that a child can grasp it. Treat others the way you want to be treated. And when, some, when you're struggling with some sort of sin... The last thing you want is to go to somebody you trust and share that with them and come away with that feeling like they dropped the hammer on you. You don't want to do that with your kids, do you? You want to constructively give them the biggest, best, and most advantageous opportunity that they can to get a little bit closer to Christ than they were before that conversation. Man, I see, you know me and my job, I see every model, every new wind of doctrine that blows through the church and it's all a load of crap, oh load. <laughs> because it is devoid of the cross. And what does he say? If any man love me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily follow me. This <laughs> Your ministry is predicated on you taking the difficult challenges of the mirror that exposes you and dealing with them humbly and honestly before God and before your people. If you're not willing to do that, get out. Get out. And then finally, you knew I'd get here. I could have read you so many passages. I, I, I just started going back through my New Testament again and underlining all these things where Paul is so clear about this death issue. But I think you can find it if you've got your eyes open. Last point. And this covers a multitude of sin. And this is something that, since y'all know me for about what, 20 years now, something like that, I don't know. You probably knew I was coming to this and couldn't leave without saying this. But if you are not a man of prayer, devoted, biblically searching God's word for his will and his discernment and his principles and his precepts, if you are not devoted to prayer ceaselessly, vigilantly, diligently be devoted to prayer, be watchful in it, pray without ceasing at all times on every occasion. If your, if your intake of air is not breathed out in prayer, you better get out because you will be a mockery. You will not honor God with your ministry if you don't know how to pray and if you don't pray. Now, I'm going to say one word about that and I'm going to close and let y'all eat tacos. I have a hard time eating right after I preach. <laughs> Whenever I hear prayer, oh man, and it gets to come back and say, oh God, help us, help us, help us, help us, help us. We're so weak and frail and foolish and stupid, and I'm at the head of that line. And as soon as I 
as soon as something rocks my earthly boat, I start asking for things from you that I ain't got no business asking for you because they're just for me. You go into prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and man, it's been 20 minutes on Aunt Betty's ingrown toenail. And that God would take away that toenail and give her a new toenail that's as shiny as a baby's bottom. And, and and deliver her from the suffering of that toenail. And, and, and if, even more, if you need to put a new toe on there, whatever you got to do, Lord, Aunt Betty's suffering. And the answer is to solve the physical infirmity. 99% of prayer in the church. Somebody's sick, God get them wet. Right? Am I right? Dear Lord, we know you love Aunt Betty. We love Aunt Betty. Your word says you won't place on her more than she can bear. Your word promises her trouble and difficulty, a trial, and even persecution. Your word says that because you love us like children, you discipline us, and we don't know if this is your discipline or not, or some, or both, or what. But we pray that in this trial and in this light affliction that Aunt Betty is going through, that your glory would be manifest. That her, her heart will be yielded to the sovereignty of your word and keep her from the temptation of grumbling and complaining and expecting things from you that you ain't got no intention of giving her. May her life honor you with glory and blessing and power and, and the, the veracity of the cross being evident and manifest in her life because she shows herself to be your slave in the midst of this hardship. That's the last time you went into church and heard people praying like that. What are we doing? You, sir, set the tone. What we pray about, what we learn, how we communicate, how we humble ourselves before one another. And let me tell you something, just in closing. My people hate it when I say that because they know that means 30 more minutes. <laughs> you go to Ephesians 3. Paul says, for this reason, he's talking about the blessing of the gospel and the truth in the church, power available. He says, for this reason, chapter 3, verse, verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family on earth derives its name. And I pray, Paul says, for Aunt Betty's tongue. Yeah. I pray. That God would give you power in your hearts from the Holy Spirit to understand and know and express the love of Christ. Now, Paul, you got five minutes left on earth, and you got one prayer you can offer. And you got this over in Colossians 2. The prayers of the New Testament and the teaching on prayer in the New Testament is not about the manipulation of our circumstances. It is about the invisible power that exists in heaven and is communicated to God's people who are truly dead in Christ and have been raised in him to receive a power that is miraculous, supernatural. And you don't need all the charismatic whoop law and cartwheels and what to do. You don't need all that because this power comes from heaven and it's the same power that God used to raise Christ from the 
the dead, and he gave it to the church and to its membership primarily for one reason, and is that would be that they would be able to be receptacles of the love of Christ and love other people the way Christ loved them. And we're all, James, what's what James say? He says, no wonder you don't get anything from God. Yeah. <laughs> you're asking for, you're not reading the scriptures. You're reading something else or envisioning something else because my Bible does not hold out any hope for you that God is going to deliver you from the things that are common to all men. You're going to get it. Cancer and death and suffering and car wrecks and loose children and hardship and oppression and satanic attack and 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 whatever maladies affect everybody are going to affect you. The only difference is going to be that you know how to love God and love people as you go through that. And you won't do that if you are not vigilant, aggressive, daily. How do you think I know all y'all's names <clears throat> after we don't see each other for whatever? I'm working on you, Bob. <laughs> you, 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 I'm here with you every day in prayer. And I don't, that's not like for me, that's not like, and I'm saying I don't want to pray for you. Y'all not my favorite people in the world. It's nothing special. It's, it's in the book. If I'm going to love you, and expect, I have to get outside of myself and do things that I wouldn't choose to do. Well, I, you think I'm outside out of my own? What do you y'all care? Y'all got it together up there. I ain't worried about you. I don't have that luxury. I don't have that luxury. You don't need it for that. Shall we pray? What a sober reminder from your word, Lord, that we're your people. And we have no claim to anything other than the fact that you loved us. And we have no duty nor privilege that goes outside of the scope of our responsibility to love others the way you did love us. And if we don't ask you for that help, we are going to sink like a lead balloon. Please teach us the precision of the gospel. Please help us to recover the lost element or elements of the gospel that Satan has tried to snatch from us. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction of sin, not just to us, but it would begin with us. And then it would emanate from us that you might draw to yourself those that you are calling the Jew first. Lord, help us remember your people and their plight and their preservation and their importance as the apple of your eye, for this is their kingdom that you have given us the crumbs that fall off the table. We pray for them, their salvation, their protection, their purity, their preservation. And if you would give us part and parcel with the stewardship of the gospel on their behalf, that we might proclaim the death and life of Christ for them, that we would be so glad and thankful for that. Please help Peter. Please keep him from presumptions. 
impulsive sins, keep him from the enemy, protect his life, mount a guard over him that he might be a clear vessel for the magnificent truth of your word in the gospel from this point forward. And this we pray in his precious name. Amen.